Welcome to the My Life is the Medicine podcast, where we get off the never-ending search for more and take an inward gaze to find how our lives have already taught us profound truths. Rather than turning outward to experts or gurus, we talk with ordinary people and reflect inwardly about the life journey and everything felt, thought, and experienced along the way. Join us in casual conversation and reflective dialogue to discover how simply living a normal life, reflecting on our own life experiences, has already given us all the expertise we need. Hosted by Chuck Hancock, an ordinary human who has lived life in many roles, like psychotherapist, software engineer, school teacher, orphan, adoptee, father, brother, mentor, coach, ceremonialist, and more. Chuck is a weaver of wisdom from modern day psychology to ancient wisdom of indigenous and European roots, creating alchemy from everyday modern American life. Thanks for joining us today in the second part of our conversation with our guest. If you missed the first part of the conversation, you might want to go back and listen to that one first, or at very least read the show notes so you know who it is that we're talking to. But I think that you'd be really well served to check out that first episode. So if you haven't heard that one yet, go back one episode and listen to the first part of the conversation to hear the foundation of where we're coming from, and then come back to this one to dive into the rest of our conversation, exploring how our guest's life has provided them with so much medicine for their own life and the rest of the people that share it with them. So don't miss the backstory. Go check that out and come back. We'll be here. And if you're ready, here we go. What's occurring to me as we're talking about this too, like my mind is continuing to simmer on this term that you brought in culture war and wondering about the influence of that, but I don't want to stick to that too much. I, I was thinking about the similar experience I had studying uh, with Maladoma Somme and, mm. and these groups of people that were coming together to learn West African ritual and nature-based mm-hmm. ritual and, and fairly balanced, like 50-50 white people and black people, mostly Americans, some Canadians, um, and mixed-gender people and and how in that space we were coming together with a shared intention and a purpose mm-hmm. that would unify us. And occasionally some of the race uh, and racial type tensions from our culture would seep into yeah. the room mm-hmm. still. And sometimes we would uh, focus on the intention and still be able to unify. And then sometimes in the downtime, we were having conversations about it in ways that was really illuminating for me. Mostly I was sitting back and listening uh, to the African-American folks speak about their experience yeah. of like um, this energy of divisiveness that's mm. come across even in the name of uh, trying to uh, reverse the disempowerment of African-Americans. Yeah. There, there's still like a disconnecting energy that would happen. Mm-hmm. And like one of the stories I remember somebody sharing was about like the people that are, are are trying to be in the spotlight may not actually be working for the intention that they say that they're working for. Mm. And, and, and the person was sharing a story about how like 
just even in their urban uh, neighborhood that they grew up in, like there were some pastors that were like very active and social mm-hmm. that often were involved in scandals. And yeah. it was the ones that were like, nobody really knew who they were, but they were just like meeting with a small group of people that were really in alignment with that intention of heart and connection and truly mm. helping the people. Um and so, again, another story of culture war, potentially, that is in your story and, and, and one that I've experienced as and well. And I appreciate how you you use the word energy to describe it, because when I think about that, that's something I think a lot of uh, women and people of, min- uh, people of color, um, minoritized people, have helped me understand in, mm-hmm. in our conversations where I would have blind spot that there is this somatic embodied quality of feeling that we're in that when we're sharing space with others it's a characteristic or quality of that space Mm -hmm. and i think somehow um materialism or perhaps some aspect of this like manifest destiny um, outward oriented linear progressive tendency that uh, people of European ancestry have, I think it blinds us to how we show up in a qualitative, emotional, somatic, energetic way. Right. And that even if we rationally believe that we are accepting others, that we're, um, we have an egalitarian viewpoint, we might show up in a way that like shuts down aspects of the somatic um, oneness or energy that could be created in a space or is being created in a space that we're not synced with. Right, right, right. Yeah, and and I, I keep going back to your story of this class too, that like that to me is an experience because I've had similar experiences, not quite as in depth as the one you described, but like really seeing the ear, really seeing the ankle, really feeling the person really looking Mm -hmm. and not even trying to put words to it, not even trying to get somewhere with them or the relationship or the conversation actually is like, I think what softens that for me, uh, Mm -hmm. like the, some of my own unconscious somatic patternings that, that could be uh, around race or power or something like that, that I may not be aware of. Totally. So I love that story. Yeah. And I think it's part of the resonance that the mindfulness movement and Buddhism has had, Mm. uh, recently, or at least in the past decade or two is that a lot of us are just going about life in a mindless automatic way mm-hmm. and that there is a lot of richness and uh, depth of quality and uh, so much can be perceived when you put your mind to it. Mm-hmm. The other thing I wanted to come back to that I was hearing in the story that mm-hmm. of your teacher and how she had Baha'i parents yeah. um, is this, this idea that's really up in our cultural uh, awareness right now, the, the concept of the meme, right? Right now, they're yeah. like an image with some words on the internet is what mm-hmm. everyone calls a meme. But like, there's these memes, I think, that have lived in you and in me and in your teacher and some people that we've met that are similar, whether they're coming through Christianity or African drum and dance or Baha'i or whatever. Sure. That, uh, I, I, some of our previous conversations, uh, 
or help me illuminate like some of these memes of like sharing meals together or sharing movement together, sharing ritual together, sharing yeah. like in your Baha'i questioning, you're sharing that together, right? There's yeah. like, these memes that, that are not actually tied to a, a religion or a philosophic or academic uh, domain. Yeah. Um, but they, but they're they're necessary. The, the, I almost feel them as beings in and of themselves, in a way. But they're but they're also like a pattern or an energy to me. I think. Yeah. Sure. Um, I think. Uh, I think I would I would phrase it as spiritual perception mm. that there's some aspect of reality which takes training or mindfulness to uncover the patterns, mm. and that mm. once we do, there's this literacy of. Uh, a grammar, a structure, um, a, a tone, a feeling that underpins everything yeah. of which we can be entirely unconscious. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why in so many ways the term awakening might be used in different traditions regarding this shift in perception. Um, and it's also gotten a bad name culturally too right. with like the woke movement. Right. But I think there's there's this profound sense that we bring a, a syntax, a grammar, a structure um, to our everyday lives that can uncover rich patterns. Um, and that that literacy, once we have a taste of, you know, what does it feel like? What does it look like? We can see it in any people in any mm. culture like it transcends religion it transcends culture but that there's this this underlying heartfelt energetic something mm -hmm. call it spirit um that that is there that has a definite reality which we can't know in its essence but we experience through these qualities that emerge through art dance singing speech and that when we've been affected by it, we're like, okay, yeah, that was yeah. a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Hmm. And I'll just share briefly. So I was, yeah. I was in this study circle and studying West African drumming dance at the same time. Uh -huh. And questions about community and community life kept coming to mind for me. Mm. I was like, I know that I have some control in how my life looks. And I was in a relationship where I had reached a point too, where I was like, this is not what I want my life to look like. Mm -hmm. We were spending a lot of time like drinking and going to bars. And I felt like I was the coolest because she was in a sorority. And mm -hmm. um, through her, I knew what felt like everybody. And we'd go out and I don't know. I, I, I was like, oh, this is, this is great in a way, in a moment. Until you wake up the next morning, right. until you're like, is this is this the pattern of life that I want? And I was just like, resoundingly, no. Right. So then I, I would look at the structure, the way of relating of African drumming and dance. And I was like, this is there's a potency here, which mm -hmm. is really beautiful. And I looked at that among my Baha'i friends, and they were explicitly talking about how do we have meaningful conversations? How do we create space where there's a sense of belonging? There's a sense of love. There's a sense of being one human family. Mm. And that 
resonated so strongly with me. I also, at that point in time, was in significant conflict with my own family, which, you know, I can um, now, I think I've never been closer with my folks or extended family or I've spent, you know, five, six years at this point really trying to be friends with my brothers, not just um, we happen to be related and we mm. see each other at mom and dad's house from time to time. Yeah. Um, so then when I moved back to Fort Collins from Boulder, I was like, okay, I need to make a decision. Now that I know that who I surround myself with and the patterns of life that I choose will shape me in ways that are beyond what I can choose moment to moment for myself. Mm. It's a much bigger scope. And I was like, okay, I'm taking this seriously. I think the Baha'i faith is likely a part of this. And basically I had a list of questions. I answered a bunch of them. A lot of them I was like, I don't know if I can actually ever answer. Like what's the difference between your everyday person, a philosopher, someone who has insight, and somebody who starts a new religion that seems to be like a messenger from God. Like, how are we different? Mm. And I was like, well, I don't really know, but it seems like we're all somewhere along that spectrum and seeking to progress somehow. Um, and long story short to the question that you asked about, <laughs> like this journey that led me to African drumming and dance and also the Baha'i faith, like how that all came about. When I moved back to Fort Collins, I met a lot of wonderful Baha'is in this community here, many of whom still live here, some unfortunately of whom have passed, but you know, there's, I feel still a connection. Um, they would tell me about their lives. Mehri Jensen was one of the founders of this community. She was an Iranian refugee that's mm. where the Baha'i faith is from. Mm. She was a psychologist who led retreats and um, was very invested in um, health and well-being and community. And many uh, of the folks who are now uh, Baha'is in this community, you know, learned about the faith through her and she helped them heal. She's unfortunately since passed, but she told me a story about how her uh, uncle was martyred. Hmm. and I think it was televised, and they sent a bill for the bullets to her mother Whoa. afterwards. This is, the, this is the extent of the oppression of the Baha'is of Iran at this huh. point. And, I mean, you may, you may be familiar with Masa Amini and what's going on in Iran right now. Mm -hmm. It's all related. Wow. This um, attitude and, um, uh, I, I, I should say, Baha'is support the government of every country where we live. And um, we also try to have constructive resilience and contribute despite oppression. And the Baha'is of Iran are continuing to try to do that, contribute mm. to the life and society of Iran right. while um, undergoing imprisonment, torture, martyrdom. Wow. Um, but when she told me about that, I was like, wow this isn't just a set of concepts. Right. It, it removed it, and it removed me, I think, from approaching this question, which I was taking very seriously, from just a head point of view, and it connected to my heart. Mm. Shortly after that, I went to a celebration of the birth of Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah is the uh, prophet and founder of the Baha'i faith, and his teachings are what we're striving to apply in the world right now in mm. building 
unity in the world in, in neighborhood community settings. Mm-hmm. It was at one of that, those celebrations and there was another Iranian woman um, who chanted in such a beautiful way. Um, Tahere Imani was her name. And I could feel an embodied energy. Mm. It was, it, it felt like a movement of energy in my heart that I felt connected to her, who was kind of like an adopted grandma to me, mm-hmm. and to that space, and to these words that she was chanting in Persian, and to wherever that came from. And I felt like this, this is a profound connection it's like a spiritual umbilical cord Mm. i cannot see where this is going i don't understand it i have so many unanswered questions and some of the images or metaphors described in the writings that came to mind at that point Mm. were like there's so many veils in front of my eyes like i can't see clearly but there's a light Mm. and i just knew at that point that light is coming from baha'u'llah I'm going to walk in that direction Hmm. because I'm disoriented. I don't really know myself where to go or what to do or what questions to ask. I've done that to the best of my ability. Hmm. And I felt like this head-heart connection was just the profound turning point where I just felt like I'm I'm a Baha'i. I don't have the answers. And I think that maybe that's part of being a (laughs) Baha'i. So yeah. kind of in a nutshell, that, oh. that's my like, uh, how I got introduced to African drumming and dance and the Baha'i faith. And to me, it is very connected. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, I'm, I'm hearing the, what I'm calling memes or you could even say like energies or maybe even archetypes fits a little bit too. I sure. think you call them spiritual perfect, uh, perceptions of like this image-based uh orientation that uh, in your you know your experiences with the sorority girl and partying and drinking and things like that mm-hmm. um that also i think is in the what the the negative aspects of woke culture it's like an image-based thing um and there's like an image-based uh orientation that happens with spiritualities or psychologies or sure or governments or whatever and and I also found it really wise that you said the Baha'i supports all governments because the government is is a necessary function yeah. to, to try to organize people. Yeah. To, to just be like anti the function. It's like, all right, well, then we're going to get chaos and anarchy if that's what you really want. But Or can, can we try to relate to uh, this function that's needed to organize as masses of people? And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Not one is better than another. Um, yeah. But it's, it, it too is a <clears throat> meme or a function or an energy that mm-hmm. sounds like Baha'i kind of maybe has that awareness and understanding towards. To, yeah, and I think that's yeah. an aspect of the coming back to this term culture war Mm -hmm. i think kind of this anti-government anti-authority sentiment is one of those charged um things in the culture war or conversely you know blindly following blindly adopting policies attitudes recommended by the government i think that's kind of one of those tension points where liberals and conservatives have very different perspectives right right um yeah and and i i'd say you know baha'is always try to support elected officials Uh support governments because they represent at least to some degree in whatever degree democracy exists and it represents the will of the people 
they're serving people in right. some way to some extent right um and then you know we each try to contribute on whatever our path of service is right right like find some way to contribute so that was a, quite a journey, that yeah. one question, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> but believe it or not, there's actually one piece that you left out. Was, oh, what's that? Was how did you get to like meditation research? Through oh, that? yeah, my the, bad. The okay. last step. <laughs> okay. So a few years after that, and thank you for prompting me uh, about that. Um, I So one of the laws of the Baha'i faith is fasting. Uh-huh. And fasting is a very transformative practice. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are doing intermittent fasting for, you know, weight control or feeling of well-being. There's a spiritual fast, which its explicit purpose is spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. And so um, every March for 19 days, an entire Baha'i month, mm-hmm. Baha'is fast. Mm-hmm. And we're commanded to do it out of love for Baha'u'llah. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's an interesting tension, right? Right. Commanded, obliged. He's using his authority. Yeah. But our motivation is love. Our mm. response is seeking his good pleasure. It's a, it's a it's a very interesting um, seeming contrast of opposites. Uh-huh. So I, the first few times that I tried to fast, I got really sick. Yeah. And I realized. I was eating a lot of junk. I was eating a lot of sugar, a lot of bread, a lot of starches. My digestion was off. Mm. I talked with a Baha'i friend who recommended, uh, actually a medical intuitive named Julie Walker. She recommended that I watch my gluten intake and watch my sugar intake. Mm. After I did that, I was able to fast. Mm. And I didn't get sick. Oh, and I should mention this. If you get sick during the fast, you're not, allowed to continue fasting you're obliged Mm. to stop the fast immediately because the fast should not be a cause of illness Mm. um and then moving forward you you can resume fasting if you're well again Mm. and you know more and more research shows that fasting has lots of beneficial health effects right right i had so much come up so much junk, so much of my um, unconscious, of my uh, childlike, why am I doing this, um, resistance. Um, I think a lot of people, if they go through a process of fasting, will have this happen where it's like your resentments, your self-judgment, your resistance comes up whatever shape that takes Mm -hmm. and i felt it like a fire you know um you have like a literal or or most people if they're hungry they can relate to having a sensation in their stomach Mm -hmm. that they identify as hunger but it's like it's um what is it there's a scientific term interoceptive or proprioceptive sense like you're aware of a, a physical state internally Mm-hmm. I felt a fire that was like the fire of hunger. You know, there's like this mm-hmm. burning sensation. Mm-hmm. But then it became more than that. I was like, what is this? And it got bigger and bigger. And it, it was filling my my stomach. And it also went to the base of my spine. Mm-hmm. And then the energy shifted. And um, 2011, 
2012, 2013, I had these feelings where that energy would rise and it moved to my heart and then it changed from heat to coolness. And I was like, what is this? Hmm. It doesn't, I mean, it's not stomach acid because the the feeling that I would associate with stomach acid would just be in my stomach, right? right, right. But this yeah. was like a movement of something else. Uh-huh. And I didn't have language for it. I was just noting it. And it happened every year during the fast pretty intensely. And then in 2013, it got um, to the point where I had a psycho-spiritual experience, um, a kundalini experience, um, whatever you want to call it. There's lots of different terms for this type of experience mm-hmm. um, where... I felt as if this energy was like a motivating force that was carrying me beyond my conscious will where I was just full of life and energy. Um, On the one hand, it could be seen as psychopathic, um, Mm -hmm. like a a manic episode. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any history of uh, mental health problems and I haven't had any since. so it just left a question and I was like, well, I'm going to go search and talk to people. I asked a lot of people in the Baha'i community. There were a few people and I got very lucky that um, a friend of mine I was getting to know at the time, Amelia, introduced me to Deborah and Deborah told me about an experience that she'd had that she identified as a, a kundalini or psycho-spiritual experience. It was really helpful to me to have that language mm-hmm. as I was going through this experience. Right. Um, and thank God for Amelia and for Deborah. Again, uh, I've often had women and people of color help me understand this aspect of experience, which for whatever reason, it seems like white dudes don't see, perceive, or recognize naturally mm-hmm. um it was so so helpful then i went to the internet and i started researching i came across um daniel ingram has a website and he was talking about his experiences with meditation related emergent phenomena mm-hmm. um and then he connected me to another person bart bart mentioned nicholas and julieta and then i got in this is over from like 2013 until like last year. Basically, I networked with a bunch of people mm-hmm. trying to figure out what had I experienced? Is there science around it or anecdotes? Mm-hmm. So I chatted with folks. They shared their experiences. I became a part of this emergent um, phenomenology research consortium, which is basically a fancy way of saying people who want to find a taxonomy to like inner phenomena uh-huh. uh, or, or talk about in language those inner phenomena. And then my current supervisors are folks that I met through this um, internet research and then um, eventually friends that I was just Skyping with for years. And I'll get to meet Daniel at a conference that I'm going to in San Diego. And I met Julieta for the first time after knowing each other and doing some research together for about six years. Mm. We met in September and became, and I, I mean, fast friends. We've been friends, but it was awesome to meet her in person. She's an amazing supervisor in person. Mm. And then Nicholas Van Dam, who's the director of the center where I now study. And also I met through this kind of like chain of like trying to figure out what did I experience? And is there anything published out there? Yeah. And they're all 
interested in researching and asking people like when you look inside and you meditate what do you experience mm. and so that's kind of in a nutshell what i'm researching mm. and i could share more about it but i feel like uh maybe that's enough for the moment <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, I, I am curious about the the more that you want to share and and i just want to name like how profound for you to trust uh your experience and seeking to understand your experience um even as difficult and and hard to uh, understand and relate to as it was for a lot of people and and that you committed to it for almost 10 years and or, or more by the time you're going to be done with it you know like it's yeah not a quick process <laughs> yeah like thanks i appreciate that chuck yeah and i also feel like i didn't have any other option it mm. was it was such a profound experience. Mm. It was so um, different than normal consciousness that it, 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 it just, if I reflect on my experiences in life, that's one where immediately I'm like, it's among the most, or if not the most profound experience that I have right. that highlights all of these things that are aspects of my life's journey in stark relief. Like bringing, bringing to mind all of these threads of, energy and consciousness and interrelatedness and interconnectedness and um the heart and mind and all of that stuff it was just like it was that on fire times a hundred yeah and not all positive sure. it was both positive and negative and it's been really arduous to try to sort through especially not being able to talk about it yeah um Can you say more a little bit about the negative aspect too sure um I'd say the negative aspect was the complete lack of control and my not being able to deal with that, the lack of language to communicate what was happening and feel like I had conveyed it meaningfully to someone who'd also heard my meaning mm. and understood. But I think, you know, if you've if you've gone skiing and you try to describe skiing to somebody and they have no way, like they live in a desert mm. and they don't know what skiing is because they don't even know what snow is. And you're describing like this feeling of going down the slopes and then you lose control and you're afraid you're going to hit a tree. And like, they don't know what any of that is because they haven't had the experience. I feel like right. there's some aspect of these um, psycho-spiritual experiences, which are cross-cultural, universal, mm -hmm. but at the same time, ineffable. And right. at, and, people always want to talk about them um if right. they've experienced it but you you can never really uh express it right 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 and like with your skiing example it's so good that like you can even describe skiing but in, and and people might get kind of I don't even want to stay close, but they could kind of grasp a little bit about what you're talking about. If you talked about how you moved your body and how it felt in your body and that sort of thing, yeah. but it's still not the same as actually having the experience. Right. Yeah. And I, pre oh, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I appreciate the kind of space that we opened, like with uh, a recognition of the sacred and orientation. I, I feel like that kind of space is the one in which I feel like words, like I would want to, put to that experience that don't quite describe it can be said right yeah because frankly if 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 you have no concept of sacredness or spirit and then somebody tries to talk about sacredness or spirit there's going to be like cross purposes or 
lost in translation. Um, but I think because of our shared experiences, I think with African drumming and dance, there are altered states of consciousness. Um, however we've experienced them where it's just like this visceral felt experience of like a greater unity, a greater, um, I don't know, something outside the self or some, some shift in experience that's very, very profound. And I would call spiritual, but yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I appreciate your naming the the intention that we set in this conversation, and and your understanding of my spirit, shared experiences, and um, I, I I wonder like how shared they really are. Like on one hand, I could say, yeah, absolutely, I've had very similar experiences to what you're talking about, but they're also been different, and maybe not as long lasting as as yours was. Like, but I've had very similar experiences. Yes, in African drum and dance, mm -hmm. and Vision Quest, and Sundance, and Sweat Lodge, and Oh, and actually, honestly, just like through depth psychotherapy and mm -hmm. other visualizations and things that I've done that um, dream work, like there's, there's like smaller nuggets that I've experienced that I don't know if it's the same or different than yours, but definitely yeah. touching into some sort of transpersonal, transcendent, other energies yeah. for sure. And where I am curious, like, and why I asked the follow-up question about the negative is that mm -hmm. one idea that um, I've encountered through my experience and then heard in my studies of Carl Jung, him talking mm -hmm. about that was really controversial, probably still really controversial, um, is that the divine has aspects of positive and negative. It's not necessarily all good. And so like, I think that like maybe where woke culture and some people that have talked about Kundalini experiences will, um, where I get curious and a little skeptical is like, and, and why I honed in on that is that like, it is a difficult experience too, to have oh, yeah. that, that connection. It's mm -hmm. not like, Oh yay, everything is so amazing and love and light. And, and, and like, <clears throat> no. that's, that's one small aspect. <laughs> right. And and there is a negative and a dark side mm -hmm. and, and a challenge and a difficulty with these types yeah. of experiences too. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate, I appreciate you inviting this reflection on the, the shadow aspect of it or the, dif the difficulty yeah. in it, because I think I, I wasn't seeking, and actually, I think within the Baha'i faith, there's really not an encouragement to seek out spiritual experiences for their own sake. Mm. There's not this sense of like, well, fast, and then you can have these extraordinarily extraordinary experiences. That's not the purpose of the yeah. fast. Mm -hmm. The purpose of the fast um, is for spiritual awakening, but like to do something um, sacrificially whereby your spirit communes with the spirit of Baha'u'llah that somehow acknowledges his sacrifice for the whole of humanity to get this message that is what he calls a divine remedy or, or healing medicine. I mean, like connecting it to mm -hmm. um, the name of your podcast mm -hmm. to the whole of humanity. And so we experience some degree of pain right. to dignify and relate our own aspect and then also have i think to some degree this uh willpower to not just coast along on the currents of busyness or instinct that might otherwise just like 
carry us through life unconsciously where at the end of the day we might reflect back and be like what did i do Mm -hmm. where was i how did i even get here Mm -hmm. but to use the powers of mind of reflection of will of heart to be present and create a different space and uh, pursue uh, a practice that cultivates those aspects of the self right so that said i would not recommend to a lot of people (laughs) to pursue this kind of experience for themselves and so many of my friends are really interested in psychedelics and i feel both ways i'm like Mm -hmm. you know when i've heard people describe psychedelic experiences there's something of that like blissful interconnectedness that i Mm -hmm. also experienced yeah but there's also a difficulty, I think, that that I, I don't do psychedelics myself, but other people have shared with me that there's a lot of difficulty that can come from that. And so I think whether or not psychedelics occasion spiritual experiences, maybe that's uh, debatable, but I think cultivating these qualities of mind, heart, will for their own sake is really important not necessarily chasing an experience Mm -hmm. and then also not trying to stratify based on what uh experiences we've had like um i think part of my resistance to even talking about this kind of experience is people have been like gone to extremes like Mm -hmm. oh you must be crazy Mm -hmm. or oh you must think you're enlightened Mm -hmm. and i'm like I don't know what I experienced it. Mm. I'm involved in asking questions about my experience. Right. And hopefully they're of use to myself and other people. Right. But I can't not ask the question, so I'm going to go about it. And yeah. hopefully it's of use. Well, I love that. It's such a grounded and honest take rather than a grandiose take, um, you know, which I think is part of why people don't like woke culture or this. Like, it's it's actually more grandiosity than than an actual uh, curiosity of, of the experience that like I'm hearing you describe. Um, yeah, it's it's not something better to attain. It's 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 an experience to understand potentially, right? Totally. Yeah. And and life is full of um material that we can reflect on and progress and pain I think necessarily causes us to reflect on that. Like in Jungian uh like a lot of Carl Jung's reflections on pain are that it is the cause of consciousness right. unless we encounter problems. We don't reflect on our experience. We kind of coast along with this childlike instinctual response to life. And it's only through pain and suffering that we stop and reflect. Right. This capacity reflection opens up so many possibilities in the development of our conscious choice. Right. Well, it's so important. And I don't know if you listened to my last episode too. I talked a little bit about some of my experience with Lakota ceremonies. Like all, most of those ceremonies involve pain, really intentionally. Yeah, and, and I remember you telling it, me about Sundance. Yeah, and and there is something about the the cost of consciousness, the 
the cost of medicine, you, like you said, well, your mm-hmm. fasting is like this intention of bringing medicine for people, and mm-hmm. and that and I think that's true too. In medicine ceremonies, there is a cost that involves some sort of sacrifice and or pain. You know that mm-hmm. seems to be um, a, a common thread I've seen in a lot of cultures. Um, that's not quite as present in our culture or the psychedelic movement. Um, yeah, yeah. Anything that's kind of like the silver bullet cure all. I think meditation's been framed that way. Right. I think psychedelics are currently being framed that way right i don't i don't think so right and that's one of the things that tra- attracted me to the office where i am and nicholas van dam the researcher who's heading that up he's like okay hold up hold up hold up let's let's do good scientific research yeah. and report only things without the spin of our personal biases we all have biases right maybe we love meditation maybe it's had a transformative effect for us personally but can it help with anxiety? Can it help with depression? Those are scientific questions that we can answer scientifically, right. but we have to have the right methodology, mm-hmm. measure what we can me- measure, report mm-hmm. statistics on what we can report statistics, mm-hmm. and not just through the lens of our our bias or kind of, um, from my perspective with the psychedelic movement, potential profiteering. Like there is right. a lot of money to be made in this area which incentivizes researchers to, and then their podcasts and research out there showing people are having negative experiences on psychedelics, it's not being reported, mm-hmm. or there's abuse happening from folks who've been trained by MAPS and other organizations that are doing this research, mm-hmm. um, crossing boundaries um, during a, a psychedelic experience for a person. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the whole of the story, but it's a part of the story that should be right. told alongside the potential healing effect. Definitely. definitely. Yeah. I actually do plan on hopefully taking uh, this topic on in a future episode with somebody. I'm just looking for the right person that has experience. I know you know that I've, I've been trained by MAPS and worked in that for a while, and I've also got these other experiences. So I have conflicting and confused uh, thoughts and feelings and opinions about all this that I do want to unpack more. But I want to ground it today yeah. in what... You said earlier, um, uh, and with this anecdote that came from uh, my men's group uh, mm-hmm. just recently, actually, there's a, a new young man in the group that is very much into psychedelic uh, work, and 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 the group is definitely not opposed to it. Uh, some people have found some healing and, and working through healing with ketamine and things like that. So mm-hmm. it, there's more than one person that has experience in the group, but. Um, this one man was kind of having a hard time connecting, I think, with other people and wanted to fix and solve problems and, and you know, make people better and, and whatever. And, and somebody said, you know, well, I'm in this group to, to learn how to be present and in relationship with other people. And I thought that's a really great intention for this group that I also agree with. And... And this other man said, oh, well, I'm here to make, make me better and make you better. I connect with people in a psychedelic space of like 30 or 40 people, and we get to really bliss out on like how amazing life is and how great this apple is. But I'm, but, uh, and so I'm not here to connect. I do that other places. Mm-hmm. And, and it really struck me. I was like, well, is that really connecting? I mean, yeah, life is be- beautiful and the apples are beautiful. Yeah. But if you're also really alone and not connecting with people... Like I, there is a disconnection that's happening with psychedelics. Too. Yeah, it's been my experience uh, 
from with lots of clients I've worked with and my own personal experiences. So I think it's a I think it's a huge question right now, and I think it's a really important question given how much enthusiasm there is about psychedelics. Mm -hmm. I think there is some healing appropriate modality for them to be used yeah. for or severe depression or PTSD or terminal cancer patients. I've heard stories of it's just like helped turn people's life around. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, the most important question has to do with spirituality mm -hmm. and like, what is spirituality? Does it make someone a better person mm -hmm. to have taken psychedelics? Do they have spiritual insight because of, because they've taken psychedelics? I don't know. Yeah. But I think it's really important to define spirituality in terms of the capacities, largely that we've been talking about in terms of relationship and heart mm -hmm. and perception. Right. That that spirituality to me is not something like I've heard this kind of within the Baha'i faith. There's like a beautiful garden. You can wander through the garden, appreciate the beauty and leave the garden and never think of it again. Mm. Or you could be someone who um, passes the garden by and is like, oh, this is a beautiful garden, and then walks in, enjoys the fragrance, notices all the different colors. Mm -hmm. and is like, oh, I'll remember this for the rest of my life, and then goes about their way. Mm -hmm. Or there could be somebody who you know, sees the garden, is drawn to it, notices those things, and thinks, I could cultivate something like this. Mm -hmm. I could also do this. And then either stays and tends to the garden or starts a garden in their own backyard right. and has this um, transformation of their capacities where it's not associated with this one place or this uh, physical spot where, right. or a distant memory. Um, it's something that's like, a capacity where they think of one can think of oneself as participating in a process whereby those qualities manifest again. Mm -hmm. And it's like beauty's never lost right. if we are confident that we are participating in creating it. Right. And I think that's one of the things about materialism, especially the way it's affecting this discourse around psychedelics is like, all of those experiences are not somehow associated with the human spirit. It's just with these chemicals and it's mm -hmm. something being done to people. Right. And uh, I don't know, the passivity and the materialism of, of the discourse is what alarms me most. Right. And, and I want to be careful about this word materialism because I loved your garden analogy that I think is really beautiful and could also be taken a different way of like, there's so many people that want to be psychedelic guides now. And so yeah. some people are like, yeah, see, I'm going to create the garden over here. But I think it's also important to me, in my opinion, like the material part actually really matters, engaging with the body and the, like, no, I'm actually literally going to tend the earth and create flowers mm -hmm. versus more with my body. <laughs> um, yeah. Like the engagement with life and the physicality of life, mm -hmm. I think is actually a really important part of the process that can be missed if it's left solely in the psychedelic space or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, just to kind of say uh, uh, another balancing point. I think there's so much enthusiasm about psychedelics uh -huh. because we crave this 
this um, state of consciousness in which where everything is love, right? Without question, right. the yeah. state of consciousness in which everything's connected, right? Where um, you know, there's there's and bliss meaningful. and meaningful. Right. Yeah, it's everything salient and meaningful yeah. and beautiful. Again, I'm not saying this from my own experience yeah. uh, with psychedelics. My experience with meditation and fasting, mm -hmm. like that's definitely true. Totally. Now, well, that's my thing too. And if, when you like, when you read some of the research that is promising for psychedelics, that's a common thing that participants say. Is, yeah. Is like, oh, this is like the, one of the most meaningful things I've experienced in my life. Yeah. And having experienced both psychedelics and a, a lot of really meaningful things in my life, I'm like, well, there's a lot of really meaningful things in life. Let's actually try to find a lot more meaningful things in life rather than be this one thing. Um, yeah. Because we, we all need that. <laughs> yeah. And maybe it's part of a process in which it's not creating a dependency, but um, awakening something within somebody right. where then they pursue their own development or development exactly. of capacities in in relation to others that is enlivening mm -hmm. i think i've also known folks for whom it's not enlivening it's something yeah. where they're like well it's this other place that i can only go through this thing right and i'm like uh oh yeah yeah i hope i hope you find that this place where we are now is filled with all of the things that you're projecting mm -hmm. to, into the psychedelic elsewhere you know exactly. <laughs> that's how we create a better world yeah <laughs> see that that beauty is here and let's cultivate more of it <laughs> yeah even if i'm not like blissed out of my mind right. like uh, uh like one might be on lsd it's like you know daily life is, you know, full of pain and suffering and bliss at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot. Yeah. Of training, right, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> it's been yeah. good. It's been so good. Um, trying to, I just want to take a moment and, and reflect on everything that we've shared and, and I'll invite you to kind of do the same to okay. see if there's anything else that wants or needs to be said here. What's coming to mind for me at the moment is um, indigeneity, land, and spirit. Mm. And I wonder if we could check in about that because I feel like you have insights that I would want to know. And maybe we can capture a few of them here. Mm. But being in Australia, I've gone to ceremonies where there are land acknowledgments. I've also been to places where it can feel trivialized. Let's say there's a panel mm -hmm. and a series of speakers will say, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. Mm -hmm. And the next person would be like, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. And the next person's like, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. Mm -hmm. It feels almost like it can become rote. But I've also been to a land acknowledgement where it was so salient and relevant to like what's going on right now in this process of thinking about justice, embodiment, spirituality. Um, I went to this really beautiful land acknowledgement where there was a smoking ceremony hmm. and uh, an indigenous Wurundjeri woman who like, that's one of the traditional owners of Melbourne, Australia hmm. uh, and stewards of that land spoke about their spirituality, the connectedness to the land. And it was really beautiful. And it gave a sense of place 
and that kind of energetic, um, heartfelt, embodied connectedness that I was like, yeah, this is a really beautiful way to kick off this new center for studying meditation. Yeah. Um, but I know that's something that you've asked and maybe gotten some, some answers around. Uh, I wonder what comes to mind for you when I talk about indigeneity, land and spirit. Well, I think you ended with how I would have answered your question. Like there's a difference between giving words about it in a disconnected way and, and to be able to share words from your heart that comes from the direct experience of relationship with mm. the land. Um, that, you know, I, I, th I think the idea and the intention behind land acknowledgments, land acknowledgments is, is beautiful. Um, but if, again, if it comes from a performative or a rote or a dogmatic, this is what we're supposed to do way, mm. it feels like almost more disrespectful to me. Um, yeah. um, but, but the experience that you ended your question with of like, sometimes you've like, cause, cause I've had those same experiences of like, okay, here's somebody that's doing it because it's the, uh, a, a respectful or kind thing to do. So we've been told versus if it's an actual person that is acknowledging the land and as they're acknowledging the land, they're feeling like, Yes, here are all my experiences with this land, these ways that this mm -hmm. land has really, you know, provided for me and my family and, mm -hmm. and, and held us in, in, in a sacred time and, um, and, and these traumas and these challenges that have also happened on this land and that we're also remembering the history of that. And, yeah. and like all of those memories and experiences are, 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 you know, at some level of awareness and connection as the acknowledgement is being spoken, mm. that's a total different experience. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's beautiful <laughs> in, my, yeah. in my opinion. And, um, and I don't know if there was more to your question specifically, but maybe the other thing that I'll say is that I just believe is that like, yeah, to be able to acknowledge our connections and the history and the shared history in both of its, its, its beauty and its potential and its pain and its trauma is, is yeah. really important. And I think that that's something that's potentially there in land acknowledgements too. Like, was there something more specific with that? Um, no, that, I think that's, that's, that's kind of what, what I wanted to ask about, because yeah. I think especially in striving to bring about a more just and sustainable future, um, folks are asking these questions about, um, what, what is our relationship to land? What's our relationship to native peoples? Mm -hmm. Um, how, how do we go about things in a, a good way? And I think given how much you've practiced Lakota traditions and living in the United States and the respect and honor. I think you show those practices, that way of life, those people. Um, I, I just wanted to reflect on that because I think getting past again, things that are potentially culture war obstacles has to do with this heartfelt embodiment. And I think this is one of those pressing questions where we have to have this, mm -hmm. like exactly as you described, maybe bringing to mind this somatic and energetic and spiritual connection with the land mm -hmm. as you're saying these words rather than having it be rote. 
Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and again, I think it goes to ongoing relationship and, and, and embracing the challenge and complexity. Like I appreciate, you know, your recognition of my long involvement with some Lakota people and, and, and I still feel like those relationships are complicated. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, they're not all feel good all the time. Uh, sure. You know, like sometimes they feel really good and meaningful and sometimes they feel really hard and challenging. And I think that's just part of how it is and how it's going to be for a while until we really yeah. sort out just how impactful our, our, our the genocide and our uh, un un I'm not finding the words I'm looking for, but the colonization and and the the harms and the traumas and the the mm -hmm. disconnect and the the lack of relationship that's been happening for hundreds of years, like it's yeah. going to take a while to sort out. I think. Yeah. Yep. So makes sense. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Anything else, or should we close here? I think that. I think that's it for this chapter and looking yeah. forward to uh, continued good conversations. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me here today, Chuck. Yeah, well, uh, you're not off the hook yet. <laughs> Try to get out the door. It's been a long one, but man, it's been a good one and an energized one. And yeah. I just really want to appreciate you, Tim, for being so willing to come and share your life experiences and and your, your questions and your curiosities and your, your commitments to to your practice and living and engaging with life, you know, like your thanks, man. Yeah, story for me has been so enlivening today and so um, such a gift, like such medicine, and um, really want to appreciate your willingness to share, your willingness to engage life as fully as you are, your willingness to reflect as fully as you are. Because um, yeah, your story has definitely touched me. And I think it's going to touch a lot of people. So, and yes, I definitely would love to continue the conversation at some point down the road next time you're in the States, maybe. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Chuck, for yeah. the invitation and creating a space like this. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks, Tim. Till next time. See you. Thank you for listening to My Life is the Medicine. We hope our guest story this week has inspired you to look closer at your own life. Maybe you heard some of your own story and their story through many of these experiences are common, ordinary experiences. And maybe something about their story was unique, which also might have inspired you to think about how your life, too, is unique. Either way, we hope our story today has helped you to see that your life, too, is the medicine. If you'd like to consider diving deeper into your own story and sharing your story with others, we hope you might consider joining us on a future episode. And if not, that's okay too. We hope you'll continue listening, keep reflecting, and help you see how your life too is the medicine. Take good care, and we'll see you next time.